Well, church, uh, it is awesome to see you guys again. I've missed you. It's fantastic to worship with other people, but I love my family here, and um, it's great to be back. We're going to be in Luke 14 this morning. If you want to turn there, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, we're going to pick it up in 25 and go all the way through 33, Luke 14, 25 to 33. Uh, if you've been around the church a little while, you know when I get back in August, I love to spend the first few weeks rehashing different elements of our vision and, uh, and talking about some of the different implications of that vision and kind of fleshing that out a little bit here and there so we know some of the specifics of what we talk about there. I think we know this, this is part of, it's ingrained in our DNA that we are typically a very forgetful people. Right? I, I, I've said this many times. A cat sends me to the grocery store and says I need a dozen lemons. Somehow I'm coming back with four limes. Uh, it doesn't make sense. I forget things quite a bit. It happens all the time. Uh, I think it happens all the time in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want to bring us back to some of our vision and some of the first things that he's called us to as a church body. Um, if you've been around the church, maybe you've been here for a little while or maybe you just started in July. Uh, the way that we talk about our vision here at Dallas Bible Church is that we hope and pray that by God's grace we would become a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace that brings joy to our city and glory to God. We want to become a multiplying, mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace that brings joy to our city and glory to God. And so unabashedly, we're absolutely a family, right? That we are absolutely a family. Dallas Bible Church, and as much as you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of a family whether you like it or not. The Word of God says that as many as have received him to them, he's given the right to be called children of God. He has adopted us as sons and daughters. He has brought us into this family. And so whether or not you agree, you like each other, this, that, and the other, uh, we are one big family. So we're absolutely a family. However, we want to become a specific kind of family, uh, specifically a multiplying mission-minded family. In other words, we are hoping and praying that this gathering of people, this family right here, we're a lot more like Medea's family than we are Meet the Parents, right? You know what I'm talking about here? You remember, the, remember these movies back from uh, a little while, maybe it was the 90s or early 2000s or something now, but right, like the Fockers and Meet the Parents, right? You got the circle of trust that's right here. You're on the outside of the circle of trust, and that's the family. No one can break into that circle of trust, right? We are not like that. We want to be more like Medea's family, where Medea hosts a family barbecue, and literally everyone from the neighborhood is over at her house because they're always welcome at any given time. You know what I'm talking about? Like they crash to the backyard, everybody eats the ribs, they're delicious, and everybody's fine with it and stuff like that. That's the kind of family we want to become is a multiplying, mission-minded, others-centric, loving community of people, this other kinds of family that is marked by God's grace. Uh, in other words, we want to become so defined by his grace in our life uh, to the point that our worship of him overflows into every area of our life, uh, ultimately to the point that we become a church that brings joy to our city and ultimately glory to God. In other words, church, what we're saying is we don't want to be a community of people here that just gathers on Sundays to do church. We don't want to be a church family here that just is content with the status quo and the gathers because that, that's what you do on Sundays and I'm a good Christian, that's what we do. We don't want to be a church that just comes and goes through the motions and is satisfied by into religiosity and is satisfied by living 20, 30, 50, 60 years of our lives and never changing more and more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be a church and a community of people here that is included in the 1% of all churches nationwide that see and experience genuine growth inside of our body, largely by reaching unchurched people or disconnected people outside of these walls of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that is so marked by God's grace that even in disagreement with our community or with anybody who, do, who doesn't hold to the tenets of Christianity, that even in disagreement, an unbelieving community would not believe, be able to deny the love that we have for them. We want to become a kind of church that, that, that sees broken marriages completely restored. We want to see hopelessness uh, be shattered and brought back to life. 
We want to see strongholds destroyed, and we want to see prodigal children come home. We want to be a church that, that sees glory seekers, uh, uh, prideful, egotistical people become glory givers to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see empty religiosity turn into authentic worship. We want to see comfort seekers become missionally driven in everything that they do. And we want to be a church where people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, black, white, yellow, red, and brown, can gather together, rich and poor, middle class, everything in between, can gather together in unity and worship for the Lord Jesus Christ day in and day out. That is the kind of church that we want to become. But church, here it is. Like that kind of church just doesn't, doesn't just happen. Like that kind of fruit that we long for and we want and that I can talk about and get everybody going like, yeah, that's, that's what the church should be about. That's what, that's what we need to become. Like that's what I hope for and dream for. Like that kind of fruit doesn't just happen. It takes a gathering of people who are so ferociously committed to the Lord Jesus Christ that we're willing to follow him in every single place that he calls us to go. And it's exactly the what Jesus is going to be getting at in our passage today. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. Luke chapter 14. Again, we're going to pick it up here in verse 25 and go through 33 here. Um, all I want to do is bring us back to the beginning of what it looks like to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very easy to forget what he's called us into years and years and years down the line. So Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. Now I want to bring us up to kind of where we are in the passage. Now, this passage is going to pick up in the middle of Jesus' ministry, and so he's on the way to the cross. Uh, people, he's already gathered a following, so he's come out. That people are recognizing that he's a Messiah. Uh, they're vetting him and trying to figure out, okay, who is this Jesus? Is he really the Son of God like a lot of different people think that he is? And so the passage is going to begin in verse 1 with Jesus at this night, mighty exclusive dinner um, of a, it says, a, a very prominent Pharisee's home. And so he's having dinner at this prominent Pharisee's home. Everybody's watching him and trying to figure out, okay, who is this Jesus? Is he legit or not? Verse 2, there's a dude who swells up. His entire body swells up. Um, it's problematic because it's a Sabbath, and you're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. And so they're going, okay, are you going to be faithful to the law, or are you going to actually do some work on the Sabbath? And, of course, Jesus challenges him, and, of course, he heals the swollen guy. Um, and, of course, that brings a little bit of controversy there at the beginning of the chapter. The chapter continues, they're still at this dinner table, and Jesus is perceiving that, that all these different people at the dinner table, these are religious people that are only cared about, that, that really only care about their seat at the table. Um, these are people that are saying, okay, this is the right seat, this is the one that gets me a lot of elevation, gives me a lot of prominence and stuff like that. And so Jesus is figuring out, okay, these are people that just want to be seen at this dinner table, right? They're social climbers and stuff like that. And so Jesus goes into this other story where he essentially says in verse 11, he says, okay, um, remember, he who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will ultimately be humble. In other words, hey, religious people, um, bring yourself down a little bit. Bring yourself down a little bit. Go love the poor. Go look at the people out on the streets. It's not all about you. And so he brings them down just a little bit, and he's quickly realizing, okay, these are people that are just, that are kind of missing the boat just a little bit. Verse 15 is going to set up the context here. And check, the, here, check out what spurs on this, this very familiar passage we're going to get into. Um, this guy's at the table, and he says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast, uh, eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. That's what's going to spur on Jesus' big rebuke we're about to get into. Blessed is the man who eats at the feast in the kingdom of God. In other words, like this on top of, hey, the social climbing and everything else, Jesus is discerning. These are religious people that are all about my blessings, that are all about the good things that I can provide, that think they may uh, want fellowship with me, and they have no idea what it costs to get. And so Jesus is going to get into the story here, um, immediately preceding our text, and he's going to start... Um, he's going to start telling this story of a guy who hosts another banquet. It's this beautiful meal, and he sends out all these invitations to different people. Um, the problem is no one wants to come to his dinner. 
It's a beautiful table, which is, which is playing on exactly what he said. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom. In other words, he's saying, okay, that's great. You're right. But here's the thing. Like, I prepared this great meal. I've sent out invitations, but you guys are too busy to come. You guys don't want what I'm serving for dinner. My food is not what you ultimately want. And so he tells the story, and he says, literally, I prepared this feast. I sent out invitations to you, the religious, the non-religious, whoever's out there. Like, I sent out the invitations, and I keep getting no, no, no. I'm too busy. I can't do that. Literally, one guy is like, you know what? I just bought an oxen, and I need to go check on my oxen, so I'm a little too busy to come to dinner that night. Another guy's like, I I got a field. I got some uh, real estate going on. I can't come tonight. Sorry. Another guy's like, hey, I'm newlywed. I got to go do newlywed things. A little busy, right? I can't come. And so the servant comes back to the master and and says, hey, no one's coming to your dinner. And he goes, okay, fine. Go out there and tell everybody on the street, tell everyone who's out here that they're invited to my table. But as for those who are invited, they're not going to be able to experience the feast. In other words, church, like these are very religious people that want the blessings of God. They want to be in his fellowship. They say things like, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And he's going, that's great. That's what I want too. However, I sent out this invitation and nobody's responded. You have no idea what it takes to eat at my table. Cat uh, and I always joke, we're sitting there on Tuesdays or midweek or something like this. This is a constant joke in our home. Um, we'll come home, we're kind of tired and exhausted, a bunch of things. We're like, hey, I don't want to cook. Do you want to cook? No, I don't want to cook. Do you want to cook? What do you want to do? Okay, where should we go? And inevitably, I'm always going to be like, ah, I want to go to Bob's Steakhouse. Like, I want a bone-in ribeye. Uh, I want mashed potatoes, green, uh, the whole deal, right? And a nice drink. I want this nice, perfect steak and stuff like that. We kind of like, like, yeah, that's what I want. Um, I don't want to pay the price to get it. And it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Church, like we're religious people that want the bone and ribeye. You don't want to pay the price to actually get the bone and ribeye, right? And so Jesus gets into this and he says, hey, you religious people, this whole thing is geared to religious people that dream big, that have visions written out on paper and that are leading their church and saying, hey, here's what I want. I want deliverance throughout this whole thing. I want marriages restored. I want people on fire. I want empty religiosity to be dead. I want El Paso to be a thing of the past. I want Dayton to be a thing of the past. I want racism to be obliterated. I want people to be full of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want all these things. And he's saying, that's great, because I want it too. But do you know what it costs? And are you willing to follow me there? That's what he's getting at here. You've heard this text a dozen times. I've preached it. I've shared it. But that's the setting. And I'm willing to bet that most of us are kind of going to look in here and say, you know what, I want all those things. I will cheer, I will wave the flag. But the question for you is, are you willing to pay the price? Here's what it says in verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And they were turning, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost in order to see if you have enough money to complete the project? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose that a king is about to go to war with another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able to, with 10,000 people, if he's able to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other, while the other is, long away, is, is still a long way off, and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything that you have, you cannot be my disciple. You can imagine this is the part where 
the crowd begins to thin out a little bit. I mean, there's two illustrations in order to get to the same question that that's a question for all of us, okay? You're building a tower. You're building an apartment complex. The first thing you're going to do, you're going to make your plans. You're going to figure out what it costs. You're going to figure out the cost, advantage, benefit, all that kind of stuff. And you're going to figure out, is this actually worth the cost? Same thing. You're going to war. You're going to figure out, can you actually win the war? Two similar illustrations simply to ask this question. Have you considered the cost of what it takes to follow him? Have you ever thought about what it takes to receive the fullness of joy that comes in fellowship and in following the Lord Jesus Christ with the entirety of your life. A cost, church, a cost is not typically the first conversation we have in most things. Right, right, right? Like when I was in car sales, um, the first thing you do, you get on the lot, you pick out a car, it's shiny, it's nice, you take a test drive, you like it, you do feature advantage benefit, you go through all these different things, you fall in love with the car, then you go back to the office and you talk about cost. Right? Evangelism is the same thing. You say, okay, what do you want, heaven or hell? Right? Like, great options. What do you want, heaven or hell? Do you want to be with your family in eternity with God forever, or do you want to be separated from them and burning and burning for all of eternity? Which one do you want? And you say, the good news is um, salvation is a completely and totally, is a totally and completely free gift of God that is received by his grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like, salvation will cost you nothing because it costs Christ everything. Like salvation is that free gift that is received through genuine faith when we repent of the fact that I believe I was God and I now recognize he is God. He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and to do what I cannot do. And I am giving my faith. I'm giving the entirety of my life to him. and I'm coming to him in genuine faith. Salvation is a completely, a totally free gift of God's grace. This is the conversation that most of us should have had immediately following that first initial conversation, but probably never had. Do you know what it means to be identified as a Christian? Do you know what it means to, to follow him in everything you do? Salvation is a free gift of God's grace. Following Jesus will cost you your life. And so he gets into it and he talks about two things specifically that it's going to cost you. And you need to be aware of as you figure out, hey, do I want to be identified with Jesus? Do I actually want to follow him in everything that I do? The first thing he talks about is that it could cost you valuable relationships. It may cost you this, this thing where you need to reprioritize some incredibly valuable relationships that you have, specifically your family. I mean, that's what he's talking about in verse 26. He says, unless you hate your father and your mother, your wife and your children, your brothers and sisters, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. I love the way Tony Evans says this. He says, you may be saved, but you ain't a disciple. You may be saved, but you're not actually following Jesus. You may be saved, but you're actually deluded if you think that you're following him. It's some sort of, it's some sort of a cultural Christianity or something like that, and you're deluded in what you're actually telling yourself every single day. You may be saved, but you ain't a disciple. Now, what's he talking about when he talks about hate? Because clearly, uh, he's not talking that you need to literally hate your family and the people that are closest to you. If he were, that would be in contradiction to how he treated his own family, how he treated his own mother, how much he loved her, served them, and on things like that. It would be a contradiction to every other passage in Scripture that talks about honoring your father, your mother, loving your wife as Christ loved the church, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Like, clearly, he's not prescribing hatred, hatred here. Right? In fact, uh, the word that he uses for hate there literally means to prefer above another. And it's exactly what he's getting at right here. He's using hyperbole in order to make the point that if you want to follow me, then I have got to be a higher priority than the most valuable people in your life, your family, the people that you love the most. If you want to follow me, then, nine, then 10 times out of 10, inasmuch as there's a contradiction between the way that they want to go and the way that I want you to go, I'm going to win 10 times out of 10. 
Church, can we just stop there for a second? I don't want you to just think about what he's asking you to pay. Because this isn't light stuff. You hear it in our language, and it rolls off the tip of our tongue. And I want you to think about what he's saying. Hey, okay, here's the tensions that could come up. Are you still willing to follow him? I mean, Kat and I are coming up on 17 years of marriage, and there's not a person on this planet that I would rather spend more time with than her. I mean, I've got parents. I've got a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters that I still enjoy. Like, I like being with them. I love them with everything. I've got a son, a six-year-old, that I use for pretty much every sermon illustration. Let's be real about that. And, um, like, we, went, we did a little father-daddy-son trip down to Galveston in July. And I actually got in the water of Galveston. Right? Like, I risked disease my own life. Like, we're playing in the sand, and I got in the water. Like, that's how much I love my son, right? Like, I can't see a millimeter past that surface of that water. It is that brown. And I'm like, buddy, you want to go? I'm in. Let's do this. And what Jesus is saying right here is that the disciples' love for him, a disciple's loyalty to him should be so strong that in comparison, it's like we hate the families that we so obviously love. That if there's ever a decision between following your family in the way that they want you to go, either subtly or not, or following the Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants you to do, then 10 times out of 10, or following him. I was reminded of Heather Mercer and Dana Curry's story from 2001. You guys remember this story? Came up in 2001. Heather Mercer and Dana Curry were recent Baylor graduates uh, that were now serving as missionaries in Afghanistan in a Taliban-controlled culture. They were ultimately captured by the Taliban. They were held captive for 128 days in a row. It was this massive story. Um, that was coming about, I think it was right after 9-11, if I remember things correctly. Um, but there was a massive story, too. These, these teenage missionaries, or not teenage, young adult missionaries held captive by the Taliban. Shortly after their miraculous release, um, Dateline, I think it was Dateline that did this big interview with Heather's mom. And the whole bent of the story was, how in the world could Heather go and do something that her family obviously did not want her to do? They were not in support of her going to Afghanistan. They did not want her to go do these things. They warned her that it was going to be dangerous. They did all these things, and the whole entire interview was slanted at how in the world could little rebellious person over here go and do that when her family clearly didn't want them to go. She writes about it in her book, Prisoners of Hope, and here's what she says. She says, we answered hard questions posed by our families and friends. Extraordinary are the parents who do not balk at the idea of their child moving to a third world war-ravaged, drought-stricken country, and in this case, a country serving as a hub for international terrorist activity. Parents, um, are you willing to let go of your kids? Like, would you be able to let go of your kids? In following Jesus, would you, would you be willing to let go of them and say, hey, in as much as we are clearly discerning that God is leading you to this crazy place over here, are you willing to let go of them to the degree that says, hey, I, you can go, you're free to go serve him wherever he calls you to go? I mean, it's amazing. And, and she goes on and she says that we have decided to go as Christian aid workers to a country where a harsh, unpredictable regime severely curtailed religious freedom. It gave most of our loved ones pause at best and otherwise prompted serious alarm. We were asked the question, aren't you being foolish? Why would you jeopardize your own safety? And I love what she says. Well, the simple response is this, that God has called us to go. Church, it's exactly what he's saying right here. I mean, that's what he's talking about when he says, unless you hate your father, your mother, your sister, your brother, like you can't be a disciple of mine. You're going to be deluded into thinking that you're following me, but you're actually going to be following them. You're actually going to be following their fears, their desires, their passions, their values. And the reason this, this, this whole thing sounds so extreme is because, like, is because a family's fear can keep you sidelined. 
Like the reason that he's using such extreme language here is he knows like the people that we love the most, they have a way of influencing the most to the point that a family's fear can keep you sidelined and their sin can quickly become your own. I mean, it's exactly what's going on here. Like family has this way of lulling us into this end goal, which is not pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the way that you dreamed as a child. I dream that I go to college, that I'm going to graduate, get a good job, that I'm going to meet the person of my life. I'm going to have a beautiful house with a white picket fence, two and a half kids and a dog, all right, that fetches everything for me. And, and, and eventually, like, we, we realize that that is the culmination of our dreams. That is the culmination of our, uh, of our end pursuit. And what he's saying is that our families can quickly become an idol. Our families can quickly become this thing that become an end into itself to the point that that becomes the thing that you're pursuing more so than the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, and some of us are there, like we know the pool here, like we know that a family's fear can quickly be, keep you sidelined. We know that a family's sin can, can lead you also into sin. And some of us are there, right? Like you know the tension that, that you experience there at home. Or maybe it is the parents, maybe, maybe it is this thing where God has been calling you to go somewhere that may be more dangerous, that may be something kind of like the Mercers were experiencing right there. And it may be your family's fear that is keeping you from saying yes. Like, we know that. We know, for, for others of us, I can't tell you the number of conversations that I have with people that are saying, okay, like, I want to faithfully follow Jesus. I want to be pursuing him in everything. Yet I've got another spouse and their lukewarm faith that it, keep, it keeps trying to bring pornography into our relationship in order to spice things up. And I want to follow Jesus over here, and I want to go after him. I don't know how to respond to my spouse over here. And they're saying that this is how I'm supposed to love them well. This is what they need. This is what I'm supposed to look like in order for me to serve them. And there's tension there at home. And the reason that it's so extreme dealing with family is because he knows what a, what, a, what a tight grasp our family has on our affections and what incredible influence it has in leading us either to Jesus or further and further away from him. I, I'm thinking of the number of families that are sitting there kind of going, I want to be pursuing Jesus, but I've got a materialistic, greedy partner over here that keeps spinning and spinning and spinning, and I'm trying to hold back, and there's this tension at home, and I'm just tired of the tension, and so I need to give in, and I don't know what else to do. Church is why he's lifting up family right here. I'm thinking of Miss Colleen recently. I didn't appreciate her growing up, but she was uh, the mother of some dear friends of mine growing up. And just the cost that she, the price that she paid to raise her kids up to, to love and fear Lord Jesus Christ. But early on in her marriage, um, she came to faith, got serious about her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and her husband did not. And so she was married to a non-believer. Some of you know exactly what that is. And to be clear, I want to be really clear, like this guy was awesome. He is awesome. Fantastic guy. Um, had really good character, loved people well. He was a very kind person. Um, so there wasn't those kinds of tensions at home. Nevertheless, there is this tension at home where I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you clearly are not. And, and these, the, her, her kids were raised in our youth group and they loved and feared the Lord Jesus Christ with everything. And I'll never forget growing up in, in youth group, they were always praying for their dad because their mom taught them to pray, God, would you bring him to repentance? Would you bring him to salvation? But every single Sunday morning, they would get up, and he would be like, I'm not going to church. I'm never going to come. And she would sit there and say, it doesn't matter. God has called me to be faithful, and I'm going to be taking these kids to the, Lord, to the church. It didn't matter the tensions that were there. She was up early praying for her husband, praying for her family. I, I'll tell you, a few years back, I, I was on Instagram, and I was following up with this family a little bit. Come to find out that dear old dad ended up giving his life to the Lord Jesus Christ nearly 35-plus years later. 
35 plus years, this faithful woman of God, every single day, praying for her husband, saying, I don't care what else is going on. I know that he wants to go this way. I'm not going there. I'm faithfully serving him, serving our family, serving my kids, bringing them into the church, never giving up on him, honoring him all along the way. And because of her steadfast faith and because of her resilience and this commitment to follow Jesus, no matter what, no matter the tension that's going on at home, she can sit there and say, my entire family is worshiping Jesus today because of what the Holy Spirit chose to do inside of her. Church, it's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. It's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's like, unless you hate your family, I mean, unless, unless you hate them, I mean, unless, unless your love for me is so strong and so committed that it seems like you hate the people you so obviously love, like you can't actually follow me. Because ultimately you're going to be following them. And you're going to be following their fears and their desires and their values and everything else. And you're going to be deluded, and you're going to be having this name that says Christian, but ultimately you're going to be worshiping at the God of your family. It continues on at verse 27. He keeps going and kind of along, along the same lines here, but he says, whoever doesn't carry his own cross and come after me also can't be my disciple. In other words, like your life is not your own, church. If you're a Christian, like you understand that. You've abandoned your own life. Like we, we understand that like my life is not my own. It is always surrendered. I'm always in this, in this, I'm always in this, this vein of, of repentance. And as much as the word of God contradicts my life, I'm, I'm always on my knees going, you're right, God. I, I need to repent. I need to turn to you. I need your life to be prepared in me. I mean, it's exactly what he's saying. Like, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, like, you may be saved, but you ain't a disciple unless you're willing to die to yourself. I mean, and that's what he means when he says carry your cross. Like, when we talk about the cross that we bear today, we, we use this terminology all the time. He's not talking about just everyday difficulties like a demanding boss or I've got allergies that are kind of keeping me sick a little bit or something like that. Like, he's talking about relinquishing your independence and giving him total and complete control over every single part of your life. Church, have you ever counted that cost? Have you ever had that decision or have you ever had that, that conversation with God where you're like, thank you for the grace that you've given to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you've called me into. Now, I understand what you're calling me into as I follow you. And I'm determining today that you are worth the price that is paid to follow you and to glorify your name above every other name. Have you ever come to that decision where you're saying, I am all in with you above everything, even my own life? Church, what he's saying here just flies in the face of everything that we're hearing in culture today, does it not? I mean, it, relinquish your independence? Are you kidding me? I mean, isn't the, our independence the thing that we've been fighting for since we were kids? I need to become independent of my parents. I need to be independent of my school. I need to be able to pay my own bills. I need to become an independent, self-sufficient person, right? Like, isn't that what we've been trying to pursue, like, the entirety of our lives? I mean, die to yourself? Are you kidding me? Who wants to die to themselves? Like, I mean, this is the age of self, is it not? This is the age where, where self is the greatest God in America today. I mean, be true to yourself. Is that not every single mantra you hear on Facebook, Instagram, whatever it may be? Every, I mean, find yourself. All you need to do is discover your own self-truth. Your own self-truth, meaning you're the author of what is true and what is not true. You know who that is? That's God. But you need to discover your own self-truth. Literally, a church there, there's no one that we love or trust more than ourselves. That's why Jesus says, okay, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here it is. Love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Because he knows how much we love 
ourselves. That's how much we're to love our neighbor. Like all you got to do is go online and see how obsessed we are with ourselves. Every single day, nearly 93 million selfies are posted online. <laughs> There's a thousand selfies posted on Instagram every 10 seconds. Nearly 75% of every picture posted on Snapchat, selfies, some variation of that, a little shady, but um, more people died from taking selfies in 2015 than they did shark attacks, <laughs> right? You don't need to be afraid of sharks, you need to be afraid of, I guess, right? Just think about that a little bit, maybe you can Google that later and that's interesting, but literally we're, we're, we're killing ourselves being so obsessed with ourselves. I mean, we've talked about it before, but like sociologists are calling this individualism. I've shared this a lot before, but they're calling this the most popular God in America today. They're calling, this is the thing that drives our ethics, that drives our values, drives our families, how we do life, how we vote, all these different kinds of things. And I want to read you again, just a little snippet of, this is an academic article written from some sociologists that are describing what drives our ethics today. Here's what it says. The greatest good of individualism is self-actualization where one is able to fully express and act upon his, own, his or her desires and highest aspirations, whatever they may be. The assumption grounding this belief is that all your desires and inclinations are built into you as a person, and together they all constitute your personal identity. So for any social norms or moral traditions, i.e. religion, to tell you that your aspirations or your desires ought not to be pursued is the same as telling you that you should not be yourself. The article continues on and it says, the central assumption of individualism is that what's good for you may be different from what's good for other people. This is called moral relativism. That's good for me, but it's not really good for you. Maybe not. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. You can decide that. And that the individual alone is best equipped to make decisions about his or her own life. Therefore, any sort of social or moral framework that does not account for and celebrate an individual's unique desires, inclinations, or aspirations is thus a form of social tyranny. Church, that's individualism. This is the God of America today. This is the philosophy that is driving our ethics, driving the way that we do things, driving the way that we think and feel and all these different kinds of things. And don't miss what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that could not be further from what it looks like to actually follow me. This is the complete opposite of what it takes to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ recognizes that he alone is Lord. I'm not Lord. I'm not in this position to be able to define my own realities, to be able to determine what's true, to be able to create my own path. He is Lord and he is Lord alone. Paul's going to say it perfectly, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. If anyone has reason to put confidence in themselves, I have all the more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. In other words, I was like, great. I was a great moral person, right? As for zeal, persecuting the church, that's probably not very moral. Um, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I mean, Paul's going to say in Galatians 2.20, I've been, I've been crucified with Jesus Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's now Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live in the flesh, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Church, like, that's how a disciple thinks. That's how you think if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. Like I'm crucified with him. I'm a dead man walking. Everything that I felt, all of my sinful desires, everything that I thought was true, it's all surrendered totally and completely to him and absolutely everything. 
I love the way Chuck Swindoll talks about this in his book, Grace Awakening. He talks about how in the turn of the century, in the early 1900s, that uh, all the missionaries that were going over to Central Africa, there were um, a third of all the missionaries that were going over to Central Africa were passing away and dying in the first year that they were there. In fact, it got so bad, there was so much sickness, there was so much opposition over there that mission agencies were preparing their missionaries to go over there and they were saying, hey, bring your casket with you and prepare the people that you're going to serve. Literally, bring a casket with you so that when you do die, the people that you're serving will know to put your body in that casket and they can send it back to your family. He tells a story of one of these, one of these such instances and this is a guy that's sailing down from Liverpool um, somewhere to a, a fever-infested region somewhere along the African coast in the early 1900s, but this guy jumps on a, on a tugboat. He's going down there. He's talking with the captain of the ship. The ca- he's telling the captain what he's going to go do. He's going to go reach this unreached people group who've never had any access to the gospel whatsoever, and he's going to go serve them and give his life for their cause. The captain starts laughing a little bit and says, Sir, if, if you decide to stay in that place, you're surely going to die. And I love what the missionary, how he responds. He just looks at him and he simply goes, sir, I'm okay with that because I died long before I ever left Liverpool. Church, it's exactly the mentality that Jesus is talking about here. You want to follow him? You want to follow Jesus? You want to be a disciple that that's the mentality that we have, that I died long before I ever got to X, Y, and Z. I died long ago to myself. Church, like, have you ever made that decision to die to yourself and follow him? Because I know you've said yes to receiving the free gift of God's grace. And I know you've went through the, the process in your mind of being identified with him. But have you ever come to him and said, yes, whatever the question is, whatever the direction you want to send me, whatever that thing may be, the answer is already yes. Heather Mercer, you guys know what she did um, when she retur- after she got back from, uh, from Afghanistan? I was reading this article from uh, the Waco Tribune. Here's what it says. It says, after a dramatic Hollywood-style helicopter rescue, Heather Mercer and Dana Curry became celebrities. The Baylor University grads wrote a book. They released a CD, made more than 5,000 appearances in the next 18 months around the country. Then, both women donated the profits from these ventures to Afghanistan relief efforts and left to serve again as missionaries and aid workers in Muslim countries. Here's what she says. I really felt the burden of what God had allowed through our experience in Afghanistan it was not just to have a flash in the pan kind of a story. I thought, I don't want to spend my whole life just talking about this story. There was a sense that the job that God had for me wasn't quite done. And I knew that I was called to places that were in some kind of upheaval. And it just seemed like Iraq was the next place that he was calling me to be. Church, she went back to the people that held her captive. Following Jesus didn't allow her to hold on to hatred for them. Following Jesus didn't allow her to hold on to, hey, we're different. These are violent people. They deserve vengeance. Following Jesus led her to go back and to give up her entire life in hopes that they may also come to understand the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the mentality. That is exactly what God has called you and me to. Whatever he is calling you to do, nothing else gets in the way. Nothing else gets in the way. Yeah, there may be some family tension, and there may be some that don't want you to go. I'm not talking about leaving your families, by the way. Don't misunderstand that. Yes, there may be tensions back there when some are wanting to go one direction, and God is wanting you to go another way. 
But 10 times out of 10, I'm saying yes to Jesus no matter the cost. There may be comfort that I'm leaving on the table, that I'm dying over there, and then I'm just sacrificing and saying, you know what, it's not going to be all about the luxuries, and it's not going to be all about that, but, but God has called me this direction over here, and I'm going to follow him no matter the cost. I think what Jesus is just trying to show us is that you and I were designed to flourish when we actually die to ourselves and we follow him in everything. And so Jesus is just looking at a group of people that are very religious. They're following him, they're examining him, they're hearing the things that he wants to say, they're even following him in large crowds. And they want all kinds of great things, probably. They want to eat at his table for all of eternity. They want to experience the fullness of his blessing. They want to know the joy of right relationship with him. They may even be like many of us, or maybe even like me, that says, you know what, God, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that you would do such a work here at Dallas Bible Church that literally things would come undone, and that marriages would be restored, that empty religious practices would be broken three, and, and, that, and that authentic worship would spring up around here. That God would do such an incredible thing that, that we would go into communities that most Christians don't go into, that we would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would invest in those communities, that we would love them and serve them well in a time when most people are separating and doing their own thing. I mean, it could be that there are those kinds of people that are there and we're sharing a lot of those same desires. And Jesus is just looking at that crowd and he's looking at me, that pastor that hopes and dreams of such big things around here. And he says, all that's fantastic. Now all you gotta do is just count the cost and just come follow me. Come follow me. Everywhere I take you, just come and follow me. And the question before every single one of us is, have you ever counted that cost and made the decision that, Jesus, the answer is yes, whatever it is? I want to invite you to bow with me.